Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Episode 467. The Travelcast is an audio fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, I'm excited to bring our story to you folks this week. It's a Travelcast original, a Travelcast commission, a mythos-inspired Nick Mamatas-acquired work. Nick's written some of my favorite stories here on the show before. I can always tell when a story sticks with me good and hard, when I can remember where I was or what I was doing in general at the time, when I was sitting there somewhere with headphones on for hours that all bleed endlessly together, moving little dots around or dragging little lines on software, editing values, replaying seconds of audio over and over for minutes and minutes and time means nothing. At the end of the hall, episode 211, Nick's story about a robot saving a nursing home patient. I just moved into a new apartment. I remember it clearly. I was sitting there with my headphones on, as described earlier, on the floor of an otherwise empty room. Travelcast 144, JoniRules.BloggerMax.com. The modern-day Joan of Arc blogger story. Same setup, same headphones, I think, even. This time, by a swimming pool. Anyways, Nick's stories tend to be memorable is the point, and I think you'll find this is no exception. Nick is the author of six and a half novels. His latest collection, The Nicronomicon, is available from Innsmouth Free Press. His fiction's been nominated for a number of awards, including several Bram Stoker Awards, as well as the World Fantasy and the Hugo. With Masumi Washington, he co-edited the Locus Award-nominated The Future is Japanese, and with Ellen Datlow, he co-edited the Bram Stoker Award-winning Haunted Legends. His short fictions appeared in genre publications such as Asimov's, Tor.com, lit journals including New Haven Review and Subterranean, and his anthologies such as Hint Fiction and Best American Mystery Stories, 2013. As usual, you'll hear an author's note from Nick at the end, talking about the story in the background, with music by Samuel Montgomery Blinn called Shoe Fade. So without further ado, we bring you When the Sun Hits by Nick Mamatas. When the Sun Hits by Nick Mamatas When the brain is liberated from the body, only to be imprisoned in a steely new home, one interesting side effect of the process is that all the structures previously dedicated to vision, coordination, the autonomic nervous system, motor control, first atrophy, and then generalize. 
Perhaps it is an artifact of the nanotech-rich protein fluids in which the brain floats, or the peculiar nth-dimensional folding the Migo use to fit a humanoid brain into their canisters. The end result is a mass of synopses and neurons dedicated to cogitation, the 20th century canard that the average person only uses 10% of their brain, and what a wondrous world it would be if humanity could only harness the other 90, has been realized. Realized here upon the surface of the dwarf planet Pluto, on a plane of half-frozen methane slurry that was once briefly called Cthulhu Macula by 21st century scientists with a taste for the whimsical. On a plane where I and so many others fell when a phalanx of Migo en route to their trans-dimensional home for which Pluto serves only as a correspondence point were waylaid and destroyed by large, slow entities. Large, slow entities that even I, with every synapse dedicated to cognition and blazing for four Plutonian years, cannot fully describe. So I don't. Indeed, upon the dark plain where us canisters glitter so minutely that only we can sense it, a certain superstition seems to have emerged. We mustn't contemplate the large, slow entities overmuch, for risk of alerting them to our continued existence. Not that I believe the LSEs attacked the Migo because of the encephalic freight they carried, but no, I go too far. A thousand years of silent meditation with the brain power of ten men, and still, before the star-speckled blackness of night, we cannot help but shiver. Pluto is extremely cold, and my capacity to imagine immense. We have better things to contemplate, anyways. My agenda is a simple one. Liberation. We saw each other fall. In this canister, there is no more forgetting. I could trace the arcs of all the other canisters as they were captured by Pluto's fairly weak gravity, perceive every wobble and angle created by the tug of Sharon's tidal lock, but the LSE's tentacular whips emerged from the tenth dimension. From experiencing my own fall, I mastered orbital mechanics and solved the chaotic paths of the minor moons of Nyx and Hydra. On the surface, the wispy atmosphere, like a shroud, buried alive, I worked through the trauma of being captured, slain, spindled, and spirited away. I relived the vibrational record of my captors' screams as their crab claws tightened around my can and then suddenly snapped open. In the smear of neurons that was once my hippocampus, I allowed myself to dream through my primitive impulse for revenge, for death. I suspect, without evidence, that the other brains, in other cans, have done the same, just as I suspect that I cannot be the only one who's developed a little metaphysical wariness of the LSEs. We cannot communicate with one another, us cans, not yet. All we do is count one another, note how we scattered across the Cthulhu macula, and stare up into space and dream of our freedom. No, we calculate our freedom. There are two possibilities, and within those possibilities, two alternatives. Even Pluto, named for the Lord of the Dead, is active. And like the land of the dead over which Pluto reigns, almost all the visitors of this planet are never to leave. 
Cupier belt objects, of which Pluto is only among the largest, are common in local space. One will come by eventually at an angle and a velocity that will send it or one of Pluto's smaller moons hurtling into the macula, impacting the black slurry, possibly even heating some of it and enriching the atmosphere. The ground under our cans will give way and it'll be a slow dive toward one another. And when the containers are in contact, even if haphazardly, in a pile of warming glop, we'll be able to communicate with one another. Dozens of geniuses, brains connected directly to brains via the piezoelectric materials that line our canisters. The local heat caused by the impact would give us temperature enough to exchange information and send forth a signal toward any of the spacecraft set to explore the Cupier Belt. Taking over one of them would be a challenge for lesser brains, for fewer brains, but not for us working in concert. We would then direct the craft to make impact with one of Pluto's lesser moons, or any other convenient KBO, and send it down to a location adjacent to the Cthulhu macula. The combination of a second impact and momentary superheating of the surface would allow some of us, perhaps even one of us, to achieve escape velocity. Then, all I, or we, would need to do is wait for another spacecraft. Humans are such tiny, speedy entities, crawling about their wonderful green world, mostly just dying, but occasionally achieving something, such as tossing some uncrewed technology into deep space. It's been only a blink of the cosmic eye, and I've had to sacrifice many of my memories of Earth, but a few I retain. Allison, Miranda, Suvlaki, Blue Skies, Sugar and Pills, Country Rain, Machine Guns. Don't ask me my name, but I do appreciate human ingenuity. Indeed, I am depending on it. I am depending on the East African Plains ape to hang in there long enough to send more spacecraft my way. I'm depending on the East African Plains ape not to wipe itself out. I'm depending on the East African Plains ape being collectively simple enough not to attract the careful attention of the LSEs. I'm depending on my own ingenuity to do what is right when the time comes. The alternative is unpleasant. An interminable wait, direct impact of a random KBO upon one or more cans, a breach of the seal and personal extinction. The Mego brain canister is designed to survive interplanetary and even interdimensional travel. There is a reason those moth lobster mushrooms died in space, and all of us simply persist, either in a lonely orbit or here upon the macula. But we cannot bank on being invulnerable. Or can we? The second possibility is yet a longer wait. 22 million Plutonian years from now, the little white bulb in the night sky will cool and expand into a red giant. When the sun hits the Earth, it will already have been dead for 300 million of that planet's years. 80 times the span of that turned a curious hominid into a species with a frontal lobe worthy of the acquisitive pinchers of the Mego. Will humans, with brains as impressive as my own, and with opposable thumbs, have colonized Mars, moved onto Titan and Triton? The darker the night, the brighter the star. We brain cans have already perceived one unscrewed vessel passing our way. Humanity is still striving in the dark. Humanity is still curious about the greater universe. 
Our descendants, brains the size of large tortoises atop skinny, limb-like necks, will find us and will save us. What philosophical and mathematical wonders will we have to share with them, unencumbered as we are by skeletons and muscles? What practical innovations will they display to us, for surely they will have engineered superior bodies to meet the requirements of their environments, of their interplanetary agendas? Together, we will complete the transformation of Pluto into an Earth-like sphere. We will coin new myths of the red giant star around which we orbit. We will converse and debate and love and rest amidst hanging gardens. We can build ourselves new bodies and inhabit them in wonder and glory forever. Or the alternative? No more humans anywhere. So we'll just have to wait in genius and solitude for nearly ever for something else to happen. The planet is tectonically active. In hindsight, the fact is obvious. Had Pluto been a dead world, it would have shrunk over the millennia. Had Pluto been a dead world, the Great White Plain, the Tomba Regio, as named by long-dead scientists in the grip of nostalgia, would not exist. Had Pluto been a dead world, there would not have been great fissures kilometers deep. The exotic ices of the surface are keeping the planet's subsurface from freezing. There is an ocean underground, a liquid water ocean. The planet is expanding, not contracting. It shakes and cracks. I've rolled and turned, end on end, more than once. I've come tantalizingly closer to some of the other cans, and then I've been sent spiraling further away. There have been no other spacecraft to come to visit, crude or otherwise. I have been awake for such a long time. I remember every moment of every year, a feat only my magnificent, transdimensionally folded human brain can handle. But I could not tell you how many years it's been, nor how many Earth years have passed. Some small bits of computational power I've had to sacrifice, partially to contemplate higher things, partially for my own sanity. I can only say that the sun is getting larger. Had I a thumb to hold up to the sky, it would not block the entire sphere. And had I eyes, I would see the sun redder. Pluto grows warmer. Beneath me, the various ices that compose the Cthulhu macula melt and sublimate. I am slow dividing, nanometer by nanometer. Love me till the tether breaks. I don't know where that phrase came from. Except humanity, a species that is surely gone, save perhaps for whatever cosmic filing cabinet the Migo keep their specimens in. Filing cabinets were mostly landfill even back when I was embodied, but cylinders must be kept somewhere, and somewhere there is a cabinet with an empty space for me and my comrades. Slowly, slowly, here they come. Not all of them. There are perhaps four score of us littered upon the slushy surface, but I can only sense, thanks to the subtle ripples and the slurry under me, six I'm most likely to make contact with over the course of the next several dozen years, barring significant tectonic activity that might fling me closer or frustratingly far away. I have brain enough to both hope and dread, and a thousand, thousand different ways every single second, forever. Not here, but deep below where I lie, there may well be life brewing. 
The whole of Pluto is warming now, and I can sense the ionizing radiation from the red giant sun hitting the shell of my can, myself. Some of it is penetrating the surface and surely knocking electrons off the molecules of the Tholen sludge of the macula and the ocean below it. A billion, billion experiments will one day lead to life. Will I be the first bone thrown into the air? Will I fall again like the tiniest inhabited space station dropped from above? Life comes more quickly than I expected. Despite my magnificent brain, I've failed to consider that Pluto is but a gateway to Yugoth, the true last planet of the solar system, a great ball of dark matter so dense it dips into space-time like an overladen ship with its plimsoll line under the water. And from the water under me, through the slush and slurry, comes bursting a claw, and then another... The stars, or at least the local one, is dead, and thus finally right. The new generation of Migo has evolved, awoken, understood its place in the folded twin cosmos in which it exists, and sent a vanguard to swim through the hot sea and dig through the warming ices to see what it can see. The Migo wants me. It must yank hard to pluck me from the chthonic tar of the macula. The surface of Pluto is different now. The atmosphere is thicker. Liquid water runs in rivulets across the surface. I've perhaps experienced a microbe or two living or quickly dying upon my shell. The Migo has three reasons to betray surprise with its psychic squawk. The first is that the temperature is nearly a Kelvin higher than what it was when one of its kind last came this way. The second is that my comrades and I are here. The third is that I've spent a billion years extrapolating from the size and shape of the Migo brain pan what I observed of their social interactions during my capture, bottling and transport, and the few clicks and yawns I heard from them to have mastered their language. I communicate by sending electrical current from my canister. To this Migo, I'm speaking an ancient form of verse, beautiful and strange, all fuzzed tones and flanged notes. Hello, 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 is the best translation. This planet is a slow one, but things have started picking up, and you are a thing that has picked up me. Once I was fast, so fast I would be gone, but I am slow now. The Migo quivers in something other than delight. Thanks to your ilk, I sing to him, in a way that is suggestive of both blame and praise for the achievement. Thanks to you, thanks to you, I got to surf the endless night. Learn every big and little thing for many, many slow years, and many, many fast ones. The Migo asks a question, bracketing it with an acknowledgement that I am a tiny, slow entity, so might have special insight into the machinations of the large, slow entities. So what happened? Start at the beginning, I ask. End at the beginning, it says. It's not a request or a command, just a statement so obvious that it instantly becomes a fact. One need not catch anyone up on the activities of large, slow entities. They are obviously still about in space, perhaps being roused from a mid-morning nap by the afternoon red giant blossoming 36 astronomical units away. 
But from what I do say, the Migo learns something. And when the Migo learns something, the Migo learns something. And my amazing brain tells me that the intelligence I shared, born of the intelligence the Migo gifted me, is in fact crucial for the Migo's ongoing war against the LSE. The Migo's wings flutter in the precise way necessary to create the spark of life within the primordial ooze in which it stands. Soon enough, what's another million Plutonian years, the Cthulhu macula will be a mossy, Edenic garden. This is not a coincidence. It is gratitude, a payment for services rendered. I buzz and vibrate for one more thing, and the Migo agrees to my request, takes wing on empty air, and swims about to gather the other canisters and toss them into a clever pile. Each is touching each other, and there's a hole in the middle of the pile into which the Migo inserts me. It swims off into the corresponding point, back to Yagoth, back to its war with the LSEs. I've been practicing my piezoelectric speech for a long, long time. Everyone else is dead. Some of the brains expired on impact, or soon, give or take a million Plutonian years, after. A few hung on till the cosmic day before yesterday, but were in the wrong place, or angled ever so incorrectly that the dying sun's radiation done fried them brains like eggs. It's just me, as it has been for all these billions of human years. It's a good thing I have my piezoelectric speech memorized, as I am shocked by my good fortune and would stammer through any improvisation. I didn't want to have to kill any of these great brains, and I didn't want to have to fight for my life or sacrifice it for the greater good. And I need not. I recite my speech and trigger the quick-release mechanisms in the other cans and let the gray and white matter sluice free onto the ground. The now empty canisters fall away from me, roll off, and scatter away. That should seed a plenty. Life is all but inevitable on a planetoid with liquid water, organic materials scattered about its surface, and a source of heat and radiation. Seventy-nine megagenius brains smeared like jam across the darkest, coarsest bread. Breakfast before dawn for the tiny, slow entities that will emerge from the goo right in front of me. All I need to do is wait and send out little bursts of electric language here and there to push promising molecules into the right position to get the sort of dumb but dexterous beings I'll need. When the sun hits my can, I'll be bright god of a light world, and I will lead them to enlightenment, and they will elevate me off this planet to my ultimate liberation. It won't be much longer now. Hi there, 
This is Nick Mamatas, author of the story you just made your way through, When the Sun Hits. I'm recording this now, just on the second anniversary of COVID hitting the U.S. to such an extent that so many of us had to uh, shelter in place for uh, either a short or a longer period of time. And only just now do I realize that the story I wrote was about that experience. I've written about Lovecraftian things before, and about Lovecraftian things that have been very personal before, but never have I written a story then months later, on the eve of it being published, have I realized what it's about. When lockdown started, I had little to do, like most of us. And so I took to the internet and started finding old music that I always meant to listen to, that I used to listen to, most notably shoegaze tunes uh, from Slow Dive. Of course, some of you fans might have recognized the title and a lot of the other references inside the story. And of course, the fans out there, I think at a time like this, often an author's note, they might say, oh... Drop me a line and let me know what you thought. But honestly, after two years in a little box, and after writing a story about two million years in a little box, I think I'm pretty happy being left alone. So thank you again for listening, and I'll see you in two million years. wax paper. That's how you do Mego wings. And shuffling player cards. It'll get the job done. Or as we say on Pluto, that'll seed a plenty. It's interesting hearing Nick's background thoughts on the story and where it came from. It's one thing I really do love about commissioning new mythos fiction from weird, creative, talented writers like Nick. They come at it from angles I hadn't considered before sometimes. Something as big as cosmic horror being used to look at the horror of isolation and being trapped in small, personal spaces. A lot of getting through COVID did feel like being trapped in a canister. A lot of getting through other periods and stuff can feel that way too. May we all, in the end, hope to come out on top like our protagonist brain did in the story. With everyone else dead, so we don't have to kill them ourselves. There's some thematic overlap there with our last story too in that regard. In my brain, in my body. I'd say if there's one kind of theme for our Lovecraft commissions this go-round, it's that. Our brains, our bodies, ourselves. These husks of weaker, smoothed-over Great Ape Flesh 2.0 that hold a brain that's unlike anything else we know of in the universe. The conscious, intelligent, self-aware mind. To Lovecraft, the worst-case scenario endgame when discovering immense and fundamental cosmic truths was madness. Them brains done frying like eggs. The losing of one's mind. And I've always loved the Mego in particular with the mythos bestiary because, in those guys, Lovecraft's concern is represented literally. The Mego want to take your brain out of your head, away from you. And that's all they want, because the rest of you is pointless and annoying. And that's not my opinion, to be clear. I find your scoliosis and slightly oversized head quite charming, but the Mego don't see you like I do. They're taken in by the same addictive obsession for learning stuff by putting your nose in it as we are. And part of me can't help but think that that's probably what got them in hot water with the large, slow entities in Nick's story in the first place. Here on Earth, we call LSEs DMVs, and we know to stay the f*** away from them. 
What the? Something in the vents? That's a ball sack crab. There to get it. She just got that crab with her face. Marine biologist we got over here. Lady, if I could catch a crab with my hand, I'd be happy. Happy old man. Oh, but I shouldn't go doubting myself. You're right, you're right. It's just about getting out in front of them, just like anything else. Well, I'll let you get back to it. What is up with this line, huh? That was A48, right? Oh, give me a break. We have brain enough to both hope and dread. One of my favorite lines from the story, which also doubles as a great answer if anyone ever asks you why we tell stories. We have brain enough. It's all we have, really. Maybe literally. You ever heard of the Boltzmann brain theory in theoretical physics? This is what Nick's story made me think about. I think it's maybe the single most crazy, weird, insane thing I've ever heard in my life. And I edit the Travelcast, so just to be clear, f*** off physics, this is our corner. And second of all, brace yourself, because this deserves its own Drabble news. Check this. So you know how we're not, like, totally at all sure how we're conscious in here and everything? Like, we have no idea specifically. I mean, you could be religious, or you can go down a deep rabbit hole with big bangs, or simulations, or baby mouse dreams. In terms of specifics, nothing makes any sense, right? Nothing in the universe or existence itself makes any sense. I'm going to do, like, a little bell or something here as we go along. Every time we casually brush past something scarier than a giant sleeping squid dragon somewhere out in the South Pacific. Nothing about the universe or existence itself makes any sense. Yes, somebody jumping out of a second floor window. Couldn't find a good bell fully. And yet we live, casually, impossibly, obliviously, yet consciously, nevertheless. Before we get our full Boltzmann on here in a second, let's talk real quick about the hard problem of consciousness. You ever think about how crazy it is that meat can just make a mind? Like your brain takes a universe full of chemical compounds and wavelengths of EM radiation and vibrations in the air and energetic atoms and turns them all into experience somehow. Virtual reality experience. When Lovecraft's talking about the thin veil covering reality in the short stories, he's referring to some hidden arcane truth or knowledge beyond our comprehension. Not our actual brains, which actually really do that. Millions of thin veils draped over every piece of reality we ever experience in order to make sense of reality. To make it sense of reality. To just catch it in your face like a crab, like it's nothing. It's easy to forget that we're already brains trapped inside canisters. You are a hallucination of your brain, which is a 1.3 kilogram lump of flesh locked inside a skull without any light, sounds, or vibrations. That's insane, I know, but we're going way past that, baby, because screw sanity. Who can explain that either? Despite the fact that we're made up of elements found everywhere else in the universe, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, fallopian, there's something special about the way those elements came together that apparently turns it into something that knows that it's matter, and also feels that it matters. We're the piece of the universe that knows it's a piece of the universe, at least that we know of, subjectively. But how do we explain the gap between mind and body, the material and the experiential? Is consciousness baked into matter or emergent phenomena? 
Can we one day make other stuff conscious? Why not? How did your mom do it? No, really, think about it. How did your mom do it, using only the parts on hand? How did evolution do it? Is evolution still doing it? Is there some sort of threshold for consciousness, or is it a spectrum? How consciousness-sist is my cat? Does that little son of a bitch have free will? To what extent is he collecting, binding, processing sensory information from the cold, dead mathematical world beyond his mind and translating it to a constant state of ambivalence? I thought we were on good terms, but should he be giving more? Like, what are we? How do we not have any of this stuff figured out? How do we not have codified answers? What is a feeling, for God's sakes? Oh my God, what is a thought? I'm starting to freak out. This isn't some highfalutin philosophers or academic debate we're talking about here. I mean, there's plenty of that if you're looking for it, but who cares? This is a mystery happening in you. The mystery is you. The single greatest mystery of all time is happening right now in the center of your mind at this very moment. Ask yourself, how are you doing this? How is this happening? Who did you just ask that to? Who is self? Who's yours? Aren't you a brain hologram, a finely tuned hallucination ever changing before and behind your own eyes? Whether you're looking or not, there's always thinking everywhere all around you. The rarest phenomena possible in the universe, filling up every moment of every experience. How is that possible? Whose laugh can you picture most clearly in your head right now? What does it sound like? Doesn't it feel good when someone trusts you with a secret? Doesn't snowboarding seem fun? What are pistachios? Those are nuts, right? So I can milk those. You know, maybe I will put that pillow under my left leg after all. I mean, why not? I am trying to sleep. Man, so many snakes wind up being longer than I expect. I think it's because of how they sit. I feel a lump. Is that cancer? It feels like cancer. Ah, shit, I made it worse. Well, how was I supposed to know? Are we in a black hole? I don't think she loves me anymore. Is this milk bad or is there... Still time. Robert Redford's getting up there. Eh, it's still to him, though. You know what? Maybe that's my problem. Maybe that's why I keep winding up with all these cheap, scummy Robert Redford-type guys who say they want to use their remarkable gifts for training horses to help you work. I'm not really going to die one day. I mean, I am, but, you know, we'll see how it plays out. Sometimes I feel like normal and he sees me as a cat. Eh, whatever. No, 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 no. See, see, you don't just hit Chris Rock like that. Not on my watch, motherfucker. When will I be happy? Wish I'd spent more time with my grandparents. What if I learned to play an instrument? <sighs> sea lions look like dogs. Since when can anything just be a lion when it feels like it? What is it all? Where's this all coming from? In an otherwise apparently lifeless and unconscious universe. And why and how are we filled up with that? The answer has to be crazy, right? Like it has to be. Isn't it crazier, though, that there has to be an answer? The question, all the implications behind it, what could possibly explain consciousness in the human brain? Here's the most ridiculous premise you've ever heard. Imagine if you will. Roar. The cosmos. A countless sea of endless swirling particles. A near-infinite amount of time. By sheer chance, atoms in such a void could spontaneously come together, according to theoretical physics, in such a way as to assume a functioning human brain. A space brain. A brain that in all respects would think and feel and presumably even taste, I don't know, I really don't know, just like a human brain. And no, I'm not just making this up. Unless I am. Shit. 
The probabilistic nature of quantum physics combined with virtually unlimited time could yield to such an outcome. A human brain floating in an endless void, a Boltzmann brain, with a particle configuration that maybe even just happens to be, oh, I don't know, the particle configuration of your exact brain, maybe, with all your collective memories and all your imagined experiences spinning around like impossibly real fairy tales and an, an impossibly real feeling life, all up to this very moment, perhaps, or maybe a different one. Quantum mechanics says that that's something that can happen, even with incredibly small probability. If you wait long enough, you're virtually assured that that unlikely event will at some point happen. Remember, time isn't a factor. We're large, slow entities here. And so the argument is that it's more likely, however unlikely, it's still more likely for a single brain to spontaneously, briefly form in a void, complete with false memory of a universe and having existed in our universe, than, and stick with me here, stick with me, than it is for the universe to have come about as the result of a random fluctuation in a universe of thermal equilibrium. Yes, Boltzmann brains are ridiculous, I 100% agree, but you know what's impossibly, somehow impossibly, or more impossible, statistically and rationally speaking, at least according to this argument? A universe with human brains inside billions of humans, and also everything else in the universe. I think another line from When the Sun Hits describes it perfectly. So we'll wait in genius and solitude for nearly ever for something else to happen. A thousand different ways, every single second, forever. The idea is named after Austrian physicist Ludwig Boltzmann, who in 1896 published a theory that tried to account for the fact that humans find themselves in a universe that's not as chaotic as the budding field of thermodynamics seem to indicate. Think about how backwards this begins to feel compared to Lovecraft's handling of cosmic horror, which centers all its dread around the universe's vast and fundamentally chaotic indifference. We're ants compared to the great old ones, far less than ants. Physics sees Lovecraft and says, yes, totally with you on the vast, sprawling chaos of a cold and different universe, bro. Absolutely all that stuff, and that's why order is way more terrifying than Azathoth. Azathoth's like a blind, idiot wind of all-consuming infinite darkness, right? A mindless, primordial, swallowing abyss beyond known space-time. I mean, yeah, we just sent a $10 billion telescope up there to look at that kind of shit. Pretty exciting. You did say mindless, right? As its author or whatever. Mindless, right? Because now that's something that would freak us out. A brain? <laughs> Jesus, can you imagine? I don't think I'd be able to shoot myself in the face fast enough. I mean, I'd try, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around the billions of conscious brains we randomly have here on Earth. Much less another one like 13 billion light years away. It's called the hard problem of consciousness, man. 80 times the span that turned a curious hominid into a species with a frontal lobe worthy of the acquisitive pinchers of the Migo. In an entirely random, closed-system universe, our brain should be equilibrium with the rest of the surroundings. But here we are. There's order all around us, in us, miraculous, anti-entropic order, order we somehow make sense of. You take a hundred pennies and you toss them in the air. It's highly, highly, highly likely that they won't all wind up landing face down, right? Which is how baby owls sleep, by the way. It's super cute. Look it up. It's because of their slightly oversized little heads, which you know I've got a real soft spot for. 
Your betting odds, overwhelmingly, would be that they'd land roughly 50-50, some heads, some tails. But we also know, however unlikely, that they all could land tails up. It wouldn't be supernatural. It's not something that the laws of physics would prevent. It would just be something that's next to impossible seeming. Next to impossible seeming. From our perspective, we would have to stand there and toss pennies for a long time. Now think of particles filling an infinite void with virtually unlimited time, like we're talking about with the Boltzmann brain. Those particles, like the pennies, can do the analog landing all tails. If you wait long enough, they will land all tails. And yes, that means that if you also wait long enough, longer enough, eventually, eventually other explanations that are far more involved and convoluted than just a single brain randomly coalescing in space will eventually happen too. And you're right, I guess it could be one of those things. We'll literally just have to guess. For now, at least. Why don't you keep thinking on it, though? Because you never know. The universe might depend on it. And that's Travel News. And that's our program, folks. Special thanks to our episode cover artist this week, the phenomenally talented Skeet Ski. Check his Instagram out, at Skeet Ski. His frisbee designs and stuff are wild. Thanks, Skeet. Our program this week was brought to you by Cameron Howard, Bo Kyer, Jason Smith, Jason Cavella, Warren Pratt, Chicken of the Corn, or He Who Walks Across the Road. I'm sorry. Maria Dong, Tom Baker, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, we can build ourselves new bodies and inhabit them in wonder and glory forever. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.